0: Twelve Byzantine Rulers, by Lars Brownworth. Episode six, Zeno. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the reign of Julian the Apostate, that misguided visionary who squandered such tremendous talent in a fruitless attempt to restore paganism and destroy Christianity. The last emperor to rule a united empire He was also the last male relative of Constantine the Great, leaving the empire in a dangerous state of confusion and dynastic exhaustion. The 96 years that followed were to see a continued spread of chaos and weakness until both east and west were tottering on the verge of collapse. This was to end with perhaps the most eventful reign in Byzantine history, that of a barbarian general named Zeno, who against all odds rose from his humble origins to become the sole emperor. The term barbarian, by the way, is misleading, conjuring up images of half-naked, savage hordes rampaging through history, burning everything in their path. But the various peoples of the empire, who are referred to as barbarians here, were in many cases both well-educated and cultured men who were usually fluent in both Latin and Greek. The term barbarian was simply a catch-all phrase that applied to anyone non-Roman or from a non-Hellenized area of the empire. In many ways, this is really a lecture about two emperors, as you cannot really understand Zeno without first knowing about Leo, the man who preceded him. But our story begins with a man who is neither an emperor nor even a Byzantine. Both halves of the empire were controlled by barbarian Germanic elements in the army. The west by a general named Aetius, who had spent the last 30 years as the power behind the throne, and the east by an Arian named Asper. The puppet western emperor, Valentinian III, decided that he wanted to rule in his own right and rashly killed Aetius with his own hands, and several months later paid the price of his folly when he was assassinated by disgruntled officers. The generals chose an elderly senator to replace him, actually he was around 60 years old, who quickly forced the widowed empress to marry him and bribed everyone else to gain control of the palace. He demonstrated a remarkable lack of lack of tact, embracing his predecessor's murderers as friends, and ignoring the barbarian tribes on the frontier. Not surprisingly, within a few months a Vandal army stood at the gates, and the general reaction was complete and utter panic. Instead of trying to defend the city or inspiring his citizens, he advised them to flee, but was unable to do so himself as the discouraged populace turned on him, and blaming him for the entire disaster, dismembered him and threw the pieces into the Tiber. With no public official left to stop the invaders, it was up to the Pope, named Leo, to make his way out to the barbarian camp and try to come to terms. It was not as hopeless as it seemed. Three years earlier, it had been Attila the Hun at the gates, and Leo had successfully turned them away. This time, however, the most he managed was a promise by the barbarians not to kill anyone or destroy any buildings. The gates were obligingly opened, and for the next 14 days, the city was systematically stripped of all its wealth. Anything not nailed down was hauled off, even the gilded copper roofs of churches, temples, and synagogues. It was all packed into carts and taken, ironically enough given the bad blood between the two cities, to the vandal capital of Carthage. This sack of Rome would last a long time in the memory of the West, and the horror felt at the desecration is still echoed today in our word vandal. But the barbarians had kept their word, the citizens remained untouched, and the buildings still stood. As the historian John Julius Norwich wrote, they had behaved like brigands certainly, but not on this occasion like vandals. If the situation in the West was bleak, the East was only slightly less so. The real power was held by a barbarian general named Asper, who had been controlling events for at least 23 years. When his pet emperor died without an heir, the army looked to him for a replacement. There was no question of Asper on the throne. He was both a barbarian and a fanatical Aryan. But, content to play kingmaker, he chose a 59-year-old member of his own staff named Leo. The choice could hardly have been better, but if Asper had wanted another docile puppet, he was soon to be bitterly disillusioned. Leo was crowned in the traditional manner, with the acclamation of the soldiers ringing in his ears as they lifted him up on their shields. But for the first time, there was a second part of the ceremony, showing the increased importance of the Christian faith During a high mass in the Church of the Holy Wisdom, the Patriarch placed the crown solemnly on his head, a tradition which would be continued until the end of the empire itself. The new emperor, though uneducated, possessed plenty of common sense, and he had no desire to be controlled. Within weeks of his coronation, he had started quarreling with Asper and made it his mission to curb the Germanic element in his army. To do this, he had to replace the Germans with another influential group. In essence, he was trying to exchange one group of barbarians loyal to themselves with a group loyal to him. For the moment, he was too weak for an open break, but soon found a group of tough, loyal barbarians from Assyria, a wild region in the Taurus Mountains of present-day Armenia. Seizing his opportunity, Leo married his daughter to their chieftain Terasikadissa. The chieftain, perhaps to make himself more acceptable to the Greek-speaking natives of Constantinople, mercifully changed his name to Zeno. The marriage must have come as a blow to Asper, who wanted nothing more than for the princess to marry his own son and to have a grandson on the throne. He still had powerful friends at court, however, the most important of which was the emperor's brother-in-law, Basiliscus. A well-educated, incompetent fool, he made no secret of his burning desire to become emperor and depended completely on Asper to get there. When Leo announced plans for a massive campaign against the Vandal Kingdom of Africa to punish them for the sack of Rome, Asper saw his chance and persuaded the emperor to appoint Basiliscus to lead it. For Asper and for the empire, it was to be a devastating mistake. With over a thousand ships and a hundred thousand men, the army that landed on the shores of Carthage was large enough to wipe the Vandal kingdom from the face of the earth. And had Basiliscus possessed even a shred of competence, it would have. Instead, within five days, he managed to get most of his men captured or killed and the majority of his fleet burnt. He fled to Constantinople, where he found that most of the populace blamed him for the entire fiasco, and only by taking refuge in a church was he able to persuade Leo to spare his life. Asper, meanwhile, more unpopular than ever, tried to assassinate Zeno, and failing that, attempted to infiltrate Zeno's troops and bring them over to his side. When the plot was uncovered, Leo saw his moment to strike. Summoning Asper and his his sons to the palace, he had them killed on one of their morning walks. Leo was finally free of dramatic control. He was not, however, to enjoy it for long. Nominating Zeno's son Leo II as his successor, he died three years later in 474. The seven-year-old Leo II, as his first official act, appointed his father Zeno as his co-emperor, and nine months later, he followed his grandfather to the grave. Zeno was now the sole ruler of the Eastern Empire, and he had much to thank Leo for. By all reasonable expectations, his predecessor should have remained a pawn of his powerful Germanic generals. Against all odds, he had broken free. The Western Empire, by contrast, faced with the same problems, would utterly collapse less than two years after Leo's death. Zeno was the sole ruler, but he was far from secure on his throne. He continued to be unpopular, probably because of his foreign origins. The Assyrians were growing increasingly arrogant and were now dangerously unpopular in the capital. To make matters worse, his mother-in-law, Verina, hated him and was determined to use his unpopularity to put her lover on the throne. She bided her time for a year, during which she made sure the focus of popular hatred was directed against the emperor. She attracted two main figures to her cause, an Assyrian general named Aylas and her incompetent brother Basiliscus, still smarting from the debacle of the African campaign. She was ready to strike late in 475. While the Emperor was presiding over the games in the Hippodrome, she sent a frantic messenger to say that the people, army, and senate were against him. Terrified by his vulnerability, and without pausing to see if the rumor was true, Zeno fled to his native Assyria, where he spent the next 20 months regretting his decision and planning his return. Verina had overthrown an Emperor, but she failed to get her lover appointed, and incredibly, the army's choice fell on the disastrous Basiliscus, This man, completely unqualified for office, was proclaimed emperor and inaugurated his reign by letting the population take out its frustration on every Assyrian they could find. Having thus insulted the army by letting their leaders get lynched, he squandered Verina's support by having her lover assassinated. Then, showing the same judgment that had won him such infamy in Carthage, he appointed a man by the name of Timothy the Weasel as Bishop of Alexandria and his main religious advisor. Hardly an auspicious start, but things went downhill from there. In addition to a vicious tax scheme, the weasel convinced him to abolish the Patriarchate of Constantinople, in action so offensive that it touched off massive riots and nearly cost him the throne. By this time, even natural events seemed to be against him. A fire starting in the bronze smith's bazaar spread across the city, completely engulfing the great library founded by Julian, destroying over a 120,000 books as well as numerous sculptures and antiques. For the Assyrian general Ilus, it was the last straw. Disgusted with the man he had helped make emperor, he joined Zeno in the mountains of Assyria. Their reunion must have been strained. After all, how far could Zeno trust a man who had betrayed two emperors? But for the moment he was glad of any help he could get. The march back to Constantinople was nothing short of triumphant. The only army Basiliscus sent, joined them after a brief negotiation, and Zeno entered the capital unopposed. It was quite different than the way he had left the city two years before, slipping out in the dead of night. Basiliscus once again fled to the sanctuary of a church and was persuaded to face the emperor only when he had extracted a promise that not a drop of his blood would be shed. Zeno, true to his word, exiled the usurper to the wilds of Cappadocia and let the winter do his work for him. Basiliscus's reign had been a disaster not only for the Empire, but for Western history. He had usurped the throne at the worst possible moment, leaving the Empire in a state of weakness and confusion at the very time a leader was most needed, virtually guaranteeing the fall of Rome. Zeno was restored to power, but he now had to face the most momentous event of his rule, the final dissolution of the Western Empire. Like the government of the East, the Emperor in Rome had been increasingly under the thumb of his Germanic generals, until the emperors were little more than figureheads, barely controlling Italy itself. At the start of Zeno's reign, the western emperor of the moment was named Julius Nepos, but true power rested with the general Orestes. The barbarian, who in his youth had been a personal secretary of Attila the Hun, overthrew the emperor and elevated his son Romulus, nicknamed Augustulus, to the throne. Romulus Augustulus had two famous namesakes to live up to, But he never got the chance as he was little more than a child and within a year three barbarian tribes led by a man named odoacer demanded one-third of italy to settle in his father indignantly refused and odoacer invaded and killed him in september 476 when the new king entered ravenna now the capital of the western empire he felt sorry for the pathetic young emperor and instead of killing him he sent him into a comfortable exile in campania Though he was considered of so little importance that history doesn't even record where and when Romulus Augustulus died, his abdication marked the end of the Roman Empire in the West. It was a watershed event in Western history, but it's unlikely that anyone living at the time realized this. After all, what was so different about a barbarian general deposing an emperor? Certainly the common man saw little enough change, and would have been shocked to learn that he was now living in the Dark Ages. The real difference became clear only later when no other emperor was appointed to take Romulus's place. Given the choice between ruling through a puppet emperor in Ravenna or one in Constantinople, Odoacer had sensibly chosen to give lip service to eastern authority while he ruled in his own right. When he received word that Zeno had returned to power, he sent him the imperial insignia of the Western Empire together with a letter of congratulations and asked only to be given the rank of patrician by which he would take over the administration in Zeno's name. Zeno certainly had no desire to allow such a usurper to reign, but with his own throne so shaky at the moment, it was hardly the time to go gallivanting around in Italy, avenging every insult. So he cleverly dodged the issue by addressing Odoacer as patrician, but telling him that the request had to properly be made to the old exiled Western emperor Julius Nepos. Odoacer, content to let matters thus stand, gave himself the title King of the Romans, and for the rest of his life, studiously kept up the pretense of allegiance to Zeno, even going so far as to mint coins in Zeno's name. The emperor, for his part, was completely preoccupied by events closer to home. For the next six years, he was plagued by Ostrogothic invasions and three major revolts, the first two involving members of his own family. His mother-in-law, Verina, up to her old tricks, continued to scheme against him and when she was imprisoned, a son-in-law named Marcion invaded the city and would have forced Zeno out of power for the second time, if not for the quick intervention of the Assyrian general Ilus. He had saved the emperor, and a grateful Zeno made him the master of offices, a position usually reserved for those held in especially high regard. But Zeno could never really bring himself to trust Ilus. He had betrayed him for the foolish Basiliscus, and then betrayed Basiliscus too. What was to prevent him from turning a third time? What happened next is a bit unclear. A rebel in Syria was trying to restore paganism, and Aeolus was sent to stop him. When he arrived, he found the emperor's incompetent brother in charge, and a violent quarrel erupted, after which Aeolus had the man flung into prison. It was a foolish thing to do, but Zeno's reaction was even worse. Flying into a rage, he ordered the immediate release of his brother and declared Aeolus a public enemy. Then, just for good measure, he confiscated all of his property and auctioned it off. This had the obvious effect of driving Islis into the rebel camp where he declared the rebel leader emperor and set up a rival court. Fortunately for Zeno, his enemies made no effort to actually march on the capital, giving him plenty of time to find new allies. The Ostrogoths, or East Goths, had been raiding Byzantine territory for the past decade, and Zeno, solving two problems at the same time, convinced their brilliant young leader Theodoric to enter his service against the rebels. Theodoric had them on the defensive immediately. He ejected Ilus from Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman world, and soon pursued him all the way to the mountainous Assyrian heartland. There, his army besieged them for four years, finally gaining entrance into their castle by means of a trick. The emperor's sister-in-law was sent into the fortress with the promise of a pardon. Once inside, she waited for nightfall and opened the gates. The Ostrogoths had had a tumultuous history with the Byzantines constantly vacillating between friendship and enmity. What they wanted, more than anything else, was to have a land of their own. Now, in 488, with the empire finally at peace, and Zeno turning his eyes once again to the west, the perfect solution occurred to both the emperor and his allies. Theodoric would lead his entire people, men, women, and children, into Italy and rule it in the emperor's name. The advantages were not hard to see. The barbarians, for their part, got a rich, fertile land of their own and Zeno could punish Odoacer without the loss of a single soldier. But most importantly of all, he was rid of the Goths forever. Theodoric spent the next five years fighting in Italy, at times on the brink of victory or defeat. Finally, having blockaded Odoacer inside his capital, he announced that he was tired of fighting and was willing to rule jointly and share the palace in Ravenna. Odoacer, finding the terms quite generous, agreed at once and invited his rival into the city. Theodoric reciprocated by giving a great banquet in his colleague's honor and holding it in his wing of the palace. According to one source, it was Theodoric himself who, as Odoacer was taking his seat, stepped forward and struck him with his sword, cutting him almost in half from the collarbone to the thigh. The force of the blow surprised even him. He is said to have laughed, the wretch cannot have had a bone in his body. Theodoric's reign had begun in warfare and blood, but he was to rule both wisely and well for the next 33 years. He was content to pay lip service to the Byzantine Empire, and for the rest of his reign, the only face on his coins was that of the emperor in the east. But his successors were not willing to keep up the charade, and in less than 60 years, the west was so far lost that it would take a full-scale invasion to reclaim it. It would also have another important consequence. The people of Rome, abandoned as a capital and lacking any secular ruler, turned to the pope to fill the vacuum, giving him both spiritual and temporal power and ushering in the age of the medieval papacy. Zeno, however, did not even live long enough to see Theodoric conquer Italy. Obviously in failing health by the time of the invasion, he spent his last years trying to solve one of the endemic religious controversies so common in Byzantine history, the monophysite heresy which held that Christ was divine but not human, was gaining strength in the eastern provinces. And in a spectacularly unsuccessful attempt to reconcile orthodox and heretics, he issued a statement which papered over the differences without actually taking a stand on any of the controversial issues. The letter so infuriated both sides, the pope excommunicated the patriarch of Constantinople, and the patriarch excommunicated him right back, plunging the entire church into a schism that would last the next 35 years it was but another breach in the tragic relationship between the East and the West. Zeno had never been a popular emperor, and when he died in 491 from a fit of epilepsy, he was not genuinely mourned. His reputation had been stained by the loss of the West, as well as chronic rebellions and religious chaos. And when the crowd saw his widow who would pick his successor, they greeted her with cries of, give the Empire an orthodox emperor, give the Empire a Roman emperor. The empress got their point. She chose the minister of finance, a native citizen of impeccable breeding, and married him six weeks later. It was a firm rejection of Zeno and his policies, and yet also an unfair one. For all his unpopularity, he left the empire a more stable place than he found it. Knowing the limits of his power, he picked his battles carefully, working tirelessly to increase the treasury and strengthen the state. He can hardly be blamed for the fall of the Western Empire or for his inability to instantly avenge it. His reign had been perhaps the most momentous in the history of the empire, seeing both the final dissolution of the West and the birth of the medieval papacy. Sino has often been consigned to that long list of forgotten rulers, glossed over by historians if discussed at all. And yet, no previous ruler had to face such serious threats, while so unsecure of his own throne. His legacy, and perhaps the true measure of his leadership, is not that the empire prospered, but that it survived at all. It would be left to his successors to restore the glory of the empire and avenge the West. Join me next time as I discuss the man who, 36 years later, would rise to do just that, Justinian, the greatest of all Byzantine emperors, and the last man to dream on a truly imperial scale. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, the Forgotten Byzantine Empire that Rescued Western Civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12